0: Get ready for a magical overload. It's episode 299 of the Dan and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Rhythm. I'll talk about that here in just a second. But first, joining us once again this week, it's Jade Taylor from The Magicians. That's right. The show debuted on Sci-Fi this week. So we'll talk about what's going to be coming up for season five. We'll also catch up with Jade. Of course, she was on the show a couple of seasons ago, too. And I'm going to ask her the follow-up question that I know that is on all of our minds. It was one of our best interview moments of 2018, actually. And if you heard the last interview with Jade Taylor, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah, we will ask her about that. Plus, yes, I will dive in to the final two parts of Crisis on Infinite Earths from DC TV. A lot to talk about there. And, yeah, we'll get to the spoilers here here in a few minutes. But we will also get to the comics. And that's next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Whether you're going high-tech or low-tech, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And how about a little bit of something new from Iron Man and Marvel? So Iron Man 2020 is out right now for Marvel Comics, and Dan Slott and Christos Gage doing the writing teaming up there. Pete Woods on the art, and VCs Joe Caramanga on the letters. Now, Arno Stark has taken up the mantle of Iron Man. And why is this important? We'll find out as we go on in the book. Because he's also taken control of Stark Unlimited. He and Sunset Bane have kind of just pretty much can ta- taken control of everything. And they're really making no apologies for any of it either, by the way. Just, just in case that uh, matters or doesn't matter. I thought I'd let you know that right away. Now again, we're doing spoiler-free review here. So... There's really a kind of a war going on in the present time, but something else is on Arno's mind and it seems to be much, much bigger. And it's kind of unclear what his true intentions are throughout this story because he's kind of a douche. I mean, a lot. Now, Now, Tony certainly had his moments. There's no question about that. But this is a lot less charming. Let me just put it that way. But I will say a lot of the focus of this book really is on the present day and what's going on with this robot rebellion and, and everything that's going on there. And there's a lot of of talk about AI versus humans sort of thing. So we get to see a lot of that going on and, and Arno's involved in a bunch of that as well. But again, it's it's unclear exactly what his intentions are even in this war it's really really interesting we know what the ai's intentions are there's no question about that but there's a lingering question about tony stark as well that we do get some insight into at the end of this book so if you're wondering what's going on with tony and and that's also kind of an uh, a thing that's a little bit irritating to arno and others as well as you know still talking about Tony, even though t- Tony is supposed to be dead, but that is something that is definitely addressed in this book, and while this book's interesting, it's really hard to kind of get past how unlikable Arno really is, like when Dan Slott was working on Superior Spider-Man, obviously, you know, when Doc Ock was in control of Peter Parker's body, it was very different and more douchey Peter Parker, and you kind of knew that going in, but at the same time, at the same time there was still something about him that was a little bit likable and and relatable in in a certain weird way. And with with Arno it just doesn't feel that way. I mean, he didn't have the easiest start to his life I and mean, he certainly has maybe some legitimate gripes, but it, it's hard to see someone in the Iron Man suit that that's this hard to root for and especially with who he's associating himself with as well. It's like there's no feeling in these main characters, and that's really, really difficult. So I will say that the art, though, is the major star of this show here because it jumps right off the page, especially when you're talking about this AI world. As a matter of fact, this book will grab you right away because of the very first page. It really gets your attention and sets the tone and creates that constant question throughout the story. I mean, even though you get the interior monologue, you also still wonder okay what is arno doing this for for good purposes of good or is he does he have you know kind of that, the a little bit of that evil in him and does he is he really representing like the real tony or what tony's interests would be or not so it's it's really really hard to clamp down on and that's why it's really really hard for me to decide whether or not i really liked this story or not so i'm going to give this a let's go with a three and a half out of five. And what I'll do is I'll jump back in on the second issue and try and find out if that changes. I mean, the art is five out of five all the way. The art's fantastic, but the story, just because of how unlikable Arno is, really is is kind of hard for me to get behind. the The AI war is interesting. What could be looming on the horizon is also interesting. But I, I'm going to need to get. Just a little bit more out of this as far as likability is concerned, I think. Now, speaking of likability, here's a couple of heroes that you've probably loved at one point or another, if you're a Valiant fan, and that is Quantum and Woody. They have a new number one coming out, not this week, but next week, and it's going to be written by Christopher Hastings, Ryan Brown on the art, Ruth Redman on the colors, Hassan Osmane Aluau on the letters, excuse me, Hassan, if I butchered your name there, and David Nakayama on the cover. Now, things aren't exactly going great for the brothers right now. They're kind of in hiding, and it seems like, you know, their days as being heroes could be over. Now, there is something going on with Woody, though, and it leads them on a very, very interesting, albeit hesitant for one of them anyway, journey. Now, I will say that the villains in this book are super super creepy and i I, it's this is not something i usually expect from a quantum and woody book is for the villains to be this creepy and they really really are so i just want to give you a heads up on that right away that the villains will will kind of kind of creep you out a little bit so and and what they end up doing is pretty messed up at the same time as well now The question is here is could mad scientists really be out to destroy the world and does Woody really have these crazy new powers which could be a game changer for them as a matter of fact what happens in this book and what they end up doing could be a game changer for their future as well. Now those questions we need answers to that much I could say but if you're a Quantum and Woody fan you'll be happy there's still that crazy dysfunctional dynamic Between the brothers that you love, you still kind of have a few things to give you a few laughs. This one does seem to be a little bit more on the series side in the early going anyway, but that doesn't mean there isn't fun to be had because that is sprinkled throughout as well. But props to Ruth Redman on the colors here because, I mean, this really made the art in the book stand out in a big, big way. As a matter of fact, in that big battle scene in particular, it was taken to the next level because of those colors, and it also helped illustrate the new powers that Woody might be having as well. So that that's also something that I wanted to point out here. Now I got to give props to the letters as well because there was some nice emphasis on the dialogue in these letters that you you wouldn't normally see. and it really did add a little bit of something extra to the story as well. So I will give this one a four and a half out of five actually. I really enjoyed this different direction for Quantum and Woody. It was definitely a little bit more fun than, than there was last time around, as far as far as I can say anyway, and you could see that there's a clear path here, and you just see that it's going to be a little bit nuts and a little bit bonkers, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all, because that's what a Quantum Woody book should be, but it looks like there's also going to be a nice constant storyline going here as well, so a lot of consistency there. Can't wait to see where this one's going. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Oh, you want to talk about something we've been waiting for? The conclusion of Crisis on Infinite Earths from the Arrowverse. We'll talk about those final two episodes. And yeah, that big moment with big spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Is it the most epic
0: TV crossover of all time? Well, it just might be. That's right. Crisis on Infinite Earths has finally come and gone from DC TV on the CW. And I'm going to drop some serious spoilers from here on out in this, you know, kind of recap slash review. And again, I don't want to go through every little bit of what happened in the final two parts, which were comprised of an episode of Arrow and DC's Legends of Tomorrow, neither of which were traditional episodes, although the the Arrow portion I think was kind of fitting because... It was that battle between the Paragons and the Anti-Monitor. And you also had the Spectre there, who is now Oliver Queen. Oliver Queen is the Spectre, in case you didn't catch that from the last episode. And we get like that quick little lesson from Corrigan about, you know, how to be the Spectre sort of thing, which I thought was kind of interesting and quickly done, which I thought that was necessary, though, because if you don't do that, then that's a plot hole that needs filling because you're like, okay, well, how does Oliver know how to do all of this stuff? So we do get to see Oliver face off against the Anti-Monitor. We think he kills him. He really doesn't, as it turns out. But what they do end up doing is they restore one of the Earths, which ends up being Earth Prime. So So the Paragons do end up doing that with the help of the Spectre. And we do get to see Oliver die once again. And there's something that Oliver says that I thought was really important in that moment, especially for an episode of Arrow. And and that's when he said, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact words that he used, but he said something along the lines of, I'm at peace. And I, I remember saying this out loud. I was like, if anybody deserves peace after all he's done, it's Oliver Queen. Now, will he actually get that peace? What is his role going forward? We still don't really know that after... Crisis on Infinite Earths, you, everybody thinks that Oliver's dead, that Oliver's gone. but And that leads into the second episode. And is that the case? I'm not sure that it actually is. So we'll find that out. Of course, we know we've got the soft pilot for Green Arrow and the Canaries coming up next week for Arrow. But then after that, it's the final episode, Fade Out. So will we fade out and find out what is going on with Oliver, really? Because, again, they're not burying a body here. They just put a suit in the case. That's all they're doing. So, again, I'm not so sure that um, that Oliver Queen is really gone in the sense that he's dead. But that's something that we can get into later on down the line when we're talking about the final episode of Arrow. That's something we're definitely going to get into, whether they actually show Oliver or not. And I think that they will. But I think there were some other important things that happened in this first part of Crisis on Infinite Earths in the first episode. First of all, finding out that they've been at the vanishing point for months not just like, you know, a day or two or something like that. And, you know, they're starting to get a little stir crazy. But then they find out that the key to getting out is the speed force. And that first episode was them navigating their way through the speed force and Barry kind of finding where everybody landed and connecting them with personal emotional moments. And it's funny because the one for Kate Kane and the one for Jean Jones, they weren't really a part of those moments, but they were inserted into them in order to sort of help make that transition for Oliver, which was very, very interesting how they played that out. And Barry was basically used for the rest. But I liked the way that that played out. So I thought that that was really, really cool how they decided to do that. I don't think that dragged out very long at all because you can't just snap your way out of the vanishing point and you have to find your way to the beginning of time, which is where things can be fixed in the first place. And that was the best way... To be able to do that was to use the Speed Force. So with the help of the Spectre and Barry, that's how they were able to do that. So again, you can't just move on to something else and have a longer battle scene. That's one criticism I've seen. Well, the battle wasn't too long. Well, it kind of was fine because you got two parts. You got part of the battle when they initially happened in that first episode, and then you got the final part of the battle where they actually deal with the Anti-Monitor in a pretty clever way, in the second episode. So if you put those two battles together, and by the way, it, it was comprised of different characters each time too. So we got more characters in the second battle, which I thought was really, really important to kind of get more heroes involved in that So that more than just the paragons. And then you explain why the paragons are hunted in the second episode. It, that sort of makes sense. Everything made sense as we were going, but I think that the way, and there, there was another important moment too in that first one where where Lex Luthor says, this is what a he- what what it's like to be a hero. Like, huh. And all of a sudden it's like, we go back and you start the post-crisis world and everybody thinks he's this great dude and he's a Nobel Prize winner and Kara's one of the other ones going, whoa, what? what, Huh? Seriously? So that's changed. Now we're going to see what we saw in the comics where Lex tries to make people think he's going on the straight and narrow and then he you know behind the scenes is doing things for his own nefarious purposes i'm sure that that's probably the case and maybe that'll be a big part of what's coming up on supergirl this season we'll we'll just have to wait and see for this second half of the season what's up we know andrea rojas is back too she was kind of nave dropped in there so those were a couple big moments from the first episode but i got i got to talk about it And this is the biggest spoiler of all, because I actually can't believe this happened. I screamed out loud when this happened. And that is when Barry was in the Speed Force, when Grant Gustin locks eyes with Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller's Flash, Barry Allen, meeting Grant Gustin's Flash, Barry Allen. The movie and TV worlds colliding in a moment I never thought I would see on a screen, large or small, I just, this is something I never thought I would see done because this isn't done. Yeah, I mean, we got to see Nick Fury in what, like one episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something like that. These types of worlds don't collide because the movies and the TV people don't typically, you know, I don't want to say they don't get along because that's not really the, the right way to put it, but they don't, they don't commingle with one another, right? They have their own separate entities that they sort of live in and then just for this fleeting couple of minutes now you can call it fan service I don't care even if it was doesn't matter to me and I'm not saying that this is some part of some larger connected universe now I'm not willing to go that far to just say well well this opens the door and this can happen all the time I don't think that that's the case at all what I am saying is is that it just goes to show you that they're, they're opening your mind to the fact that anything is possible because they don't have a problem doing this. Warner Brothers Pictures and TV don't have a problem working together like that on something that they realize is a big moment in a big crossover, and a big event for the overall company. So they decided to just do what's best for both. And first of all, remind people that, hey, Ezra Miller played the Flash for anybody that's forgotten and we're trying to get this friggin' movie made over here. And then all of a sudden, you've also got Barry Allen, who gets another big moment in Grant Gustin's Barry Allen on the TV side, meeting his movie counterpart. And maybe people from the movies are going, oh, hey, this Grant Gustin guy is pretty cool too. And maybe it goes the other way when they do Flashpoint. Maybe we'll see Grant Gustin on the big screen and we'll, we'll have another moment between the two of them. I think that'd be pretty cool. Not absolutely necessary, but I think it'd be pretty awesome if it makes sense within the story, but it was just one of those things where it was the, it was, I, when I thought Tom Ellis's Lucifer was going to be the highlight cameo of crisis on infinite Earths, I was wrong because it's absolutely this because of what it means in the overall grand scheme of things. And again, even if it doesn't go beyond just that, I loved every friggin' second of it that much. I can tell you. And, and then you get into the second half of the crossover which is basically, you know, they come home, they're dealing with the fact that Oliver has died. They all realize it's on one earth now. We get to see Weather Witch sort of crossover in the National City and you know, you know, try to do something with Supergirl and then all of a sudden Barry comes in and we get nice Marv Wolfman cameo, which was fun and here's the deal. I'm just saying that we called this one earth thing a while ago. That's from the comics. There's really no mist there was really no mystery there, but we weren't we didn't know for sure if that's what we were going to get. Now what we do have is something really, really important that happens at the end. And yes, there's another battle. It's very, very clever what they decide to do to to shrink the anti-monitor and to keep constantly shrinking him. I thought that was really, really clever on Ryan Choi's part and, and on Ray Palmer's part, and they sort of put everything together there. Team nerd, go team nerd, as always, as they call them on the show. As Sarah as Sarah said, team nerd wins every time. So that was really important. But the, but the biggest moment, other than the battles and the things that happened in the first part, was the second part, and it was the, basically, without saying it, formation of the Justice League. You get to see that table. You get to see the outside of the building that is an abandoned Star Labs facility. Actually, looks like the Hall of Justice. Everybody's got their own chairs, which I want one of those chairs so freaking bad now. It hurts. It's just, it, it was an amazing moment. And you get to see Black Lightning sitting at the table. You get to see Batwoman sit at the table. Flash, Superman, Supergirl. Everybody that should be there is there. Sarah Lance is there. Every and that is the Justice League on TV now. And it was almost like a signal saying, now that everybody's on one earth, this could happen whenever it needs to. Even Jefferson said something along the lines of, So, how often are we actually going to do this? How often does this world ending stuff happen? And everybody goes, You know, kind of often. So it was just fun to see that moment as well. And just to know that that's an option. Going forward on any show any show now, including Black Lightning, we're bringing Black Lightning into this. That was one of the most fun moments for me, knowing that we now finally have a Justice League and a Hall of Justice. No matter what happens with the future of any of these shows, you never know now who might show up at any given moment. And Maybe this does finally set up that World's Finest thing that I was talking about, where you can have a couple of characters... Get together for a little story arc and then be done with it and then move on to another one and so on and so forth. And that's just something that you could do instead of giant crossovers, which I think is exactly what I would do from here on out. Because I don't know how you topped this, whether it was how it was executed, how it really did stay true to the comic roots while changing quite a few things. It just really did feel like it had that crisis on Infinite Earths vibe even though all the characters from the comics weren't in there. You introduce a great new character in Ryan Choi, you, and you almost see how the torch is going to be passed to him to be the next Adam. You have also, you really propped up Sarah Lance in this crossover. Also, Supergirl found a big big leadership moments there as well. Barry came through in the end when he needed to. You introduced Black Lightning into the Arrowverse. There's just so many things that happened in this crossover, not to mention Mia and Oliver having their moments and, you know, Oliver getting to pass the torch before he dies for, what, the third time overall? Maybe fourth? I think we're going to go with three. He dies twice in the crossover alone, and that that alone, I think he's already died more times than Bruce Wayne's parents on television. But at this, time, at this point, we, we don't know... Oliver's fate but I just don't know how you top this crossover with another one I just don't know where you go to look at it and go yeah we can do this and it'll be just as good if not better I mean you could certainly try to do Infinite Crisis you could do Forever Evil you could absolutely do that you could even do Dark Knight's Metal I guess if you really really wanted to but I don't know that you need to do any of those things you've achieved perfection you did something that's very rarely done and that has created something massive that lived up to the hype and even brought... I mean, you had that long break and it didn't matter because you ended it the exact way that I think you, as a fan, you would want to see it end with that Justice League moment. Finally having that moment after eight years of the Arrowverse, we finally have ourselves a Justice League. That's amazing to me. I don't know how you top this. I don't know why you would try. Just let these shows be amazing. Give us a world's finest every now and then, and I'm good. But I could not be more happy as a fan for what I got out of this Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. And I think this is about as close to perfect as you can get for any television crossover. So bravo to everyone involved. And for being able to keep that Ezra Miller thing quiet... Bravo for that, because in an age of social media where everything leaks, that was an impressive thing to keep under wraps. I could tell you that right now. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Crisis on Infinite Earths final couple of episodes. Up next, there's still some nerd news to talk about. Let's get to it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're
0: listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going DC to the max this week, it's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that is that HBO Max has released some new information about one show and announced another. So let's go with the latter first. And that is what was reported by Variety this week, that an Aquaman animated series is going to be coming to HBO Max. And yes, James Wan is going to be involved ...in this project. It looks like it's going to deal with Arthur's first days... ...as King of Atlantis. It looks like Volko's going to be there... ...Myr is going to be there as well... ...and it's the synopsis says something about... ...the water-controlling warrior Princess Mirror, ...which is, you know, kind of a cool moniker, right? Now it says, between dealing with unscrupulous... ...surface dwellers, elder evils from beyond time... ...and his own half-brother... ...who wants to overthrow him... ...Aquaman is going to have to rise to the challenge... ...and prove to his subjects and to himself that he's the right man for the Trident. That's the only information that we know for sure. Now, just because James Wan is involved doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is on board for this. There was no mention of Jason Momoa reprising his role, albeit in a, in a, in a voiceover only, and uh, no talk of any of the other cast members from the actual live-action movie returning for this animated series. Now... You automatically jump to the conclusion that yeah, James Wan's involved in this, so why wouldn't they want to be involved in this as well? There's also no mention that this ties in to the live action series, the live action movie at all. As a matter of fact, it's going to be called Aquaman: King of Atlantis. No, this also doesn't seem to have any relation to the Aquaman: Throne of Atlantis movie. From Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and DC Animation, which was pretty damn good, if I if I do say so. So if you haven't seen that yet, I mean, go back and check that out because it's it's definitely worth your time. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. So as an Aquaman fan, whether it's connected or not, I'm I'm up for this. I don't know if this is something that would run multiple seasons or if this is like a mini series. I actually think it was announced. As a miniseries, now that I think of think of it off the top of my head, and I looked this back up, it was announced as a miniseries. So you kind of know what you're getting yourself into right off the bat. So, and and again, if this whether this is something that furthers this could be something that bridges the gap. Either way, it's either going to bridge the gap between the first movie and the second movie in the live action world, or it's going to give you some Aquaman content to remind you why Aquaman is awesome before that second movie comes out, because that's always the problem with sequels, isn't it, in the most in most cases, for especially for superhero properties, where you get a movie, which Aquaman, I believe, was 2018, right, and here we are 2020, and we're not even shooting a sequel yet, so that that's something to consider, you, you're going all this time without any new movies, and you understand that these things take time, and you know, you wanted to be able to do it right, and all this good stuff, but you also want something to remind fans, oh that's right, we did love Aquaman because you know, Aquaman's not a character that you expect that a lot of people expected fans to love and they did and that you could you know, go to a million reasons why that is. I've always been an Aquaman fan and you know, even though he was the butt of jokes many times, I always knew that was an amazing character and the comics, you know, brought that out many times as well. But this is just almost like a stopgap reminder to fans that, oh, yeah, hey, Aquaman's pretty cool. Remember here, this is why. So that's what I think this is going to be, and no release date or anything like that. Hopefully we get some more information in the coming months with some big conventions coming up. There was an update from the TCA winter meetings about the Green Lantern series that's coming to HBO Max. Of course, the Aquaman animated series I just mentioned will be at HBO Max. Now, this comes right from Sarah Aubrey, who's the head of originals, at HBO Max, and that, here's what we know, that there will be two Green Lanterns that will be involved in this show, that it will span over decades, and that Sinestro will be involved. So those are the things that we know for sure. Here's the deal. So I think that one of these Lanterns has to be Jessica Cruz. They've got to get Jessica Cruz out there, and it seems like there's a lot of folks at DC and at Warner Brothers that are Jessica Cruz fans and want this character out there sooner rather than later. And with the Green Lantern Core movie seemingly in limbo, right? It, it, you know, we didn't hear anything about it forever, and then somebody announced, oh, yeah, it's still happening, but then, you know, no real details beyond that. I feel like it's got to be Jessica Cruz is the one to me that is the sure bat. Now, the only thing that make because remember the Green Lanterns comic book series with Sam Humphreys, it was Jessica Cruz and Simon Bass, and that was a great combination, actually, that worked really, really well. and it was And we're talking about Green Lanterns of Earth, too, by the way, I should mention that. So you wonder if maybe that would be it, but then if it's spanning over decades, that doesn't necessarily make sense. So it almost makes you think that it's going to be Hal Jordan, if maybe di- by default. I guess because remember Hal and Jessica they do cross paths and you know he is a little bit of a mentor to her in the comics anyway so I mean it would make sense if Hal was involved and it doesn't upset me I mean there's certainly a ton of green lanterns that you could use you don't necessarily have to crutch on Hal Jordan because he's the most recognizable lantern in history you could you could do others but you know like a Guy Garner and and Jessica Cruz doesn't make sense that wouldn't make sense. Kyle Rayner, maybe, but I'm not even sure that makes sense either. And there's a whole other story you could tell with Kyle Rayner, too, so I'm not even sure I would use him in this context. And maybe I'm crutching on Jessica Cruz automatically thinking that she's going to be a part of this. Why wouldn't she be? This is an, a great character that I think that a lot of that mainstream fans would love, not just comic book fans that love this character, but this character has a bright future, and you want to get Jessica Cruz out there immediately. As far as I'm concerned, so that's what I would do with this. And as far as Sinestro being involved, again, you the the connection there between Hal Jordan and Sinestro. You almost wonder if you have to have Hal Jordan because you have Sinestro. Not necessarily. I don't think you necessarily have to do that. It makes sense. We don't necessarily have to do it. And we can't discount the fact that Sinestro could be one of these Green Lanterns as well. He was part of the core at one point. He wasn't always a Yellow Lantern, right? We learned that from the terrible Green Lantern movie with with Ryan Reynolds, if nothing else. But we knew that already anyway. But So don't discount the fact that if it does span over decades, one of those Green Lanterns that we could be talking about is Sinestro and this could just be Aubrey's way of trying to throw the scent off of who the characters are going to be in this series or something that sort of keep the mystery and keep fans talking so let's just keep that in the back of our minds shall we but I mean we've we've been starved for something Green Lantern up till this point whether it be on television or on the big screen I think it's finally time that we make this thing happen. Now, here's one thing from DC that might not be happening anymore, and that is a report from USA Today that says that the Watchmen series is now no more, and that is because Damon Lindelof has exited the series. He said that it was always planned to be one season, and then he was going to go, and and but he's given them their blessing, HBO their blessing to you know you know move on with somebody else. And it didn't seem like they were interested in doing that because HBO boss Casey Blois kind of shared with, I believe it was the Hollywood Reporter at one point, that, hey, if Damon's not involved, it would be really hard to do something without him at least being involved. So it didn't seem like they were interested if he left. And then Blois shares an article from Decider that seems to suggest that season two is still a possibility and, you know, might not be in the same time period anyway, so there might be a time jump, so it would be an entirely different story. Here's what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to go on the assumption that we're not getting a second season, and I'll tell you why. Because why? Why do it? You don't necessarily have to do it. Especially if we're not going to get a continuation of what we got from this first season that fans fell in love with in the first place. If you're going to go completely different anyway, what's the point in continuing? Why would you do a season two? Why wouldn't you just do a different Watchmen series? It wouldn't be season two then, unless you're involving the same characters and you're referencing that previous storyline. If you're going to do something brand new anyway, just do a different mini series. and that's what... This can feel like this can feel like a miniseries that was always meant to be a one-off especially if Lindelof said from the beginning that he was only going to do one season. And you know what? That's okay. I think that's something that we need to realize is that sometimes we wonder why stuff continues and then on the other side of our mouth we get we we get upset when stuff ends too soon in what seemed like a planned fashion. And we wonder why we're not going to get any more of it because it was great. Okay, well, something can be great and you cannot get any more of it. And that's okay. Because it's okay for something to have a start and a finish and we go, that's it. We're going out on top. We're done. This is one of those shows you'll look back on and remember because it was so great. But you'll say, oh, you know, it's a shame we couldn't have gotten a second season. But you're still going to be talking about it because the first season was great in the first place like firefly there's there's rumors of you know firefly coming back and everything and you know firefly was a was a one off at fox everybody thought that the show should have continued and it was canceled this is different to me in that this show's not being canceled it's just not continuing so i almost view this as a mini series because of that reason and maybe there will be a season 2 At some point, maybe it's a passage of time that you could do where you're not necessarily doing a season two of Lindelof's Watchmen. You're just doing a different Watchmen story and doing a different series entirely, not necessarily a reboot, just a different story in a different time. You know what I'm saying? You can't if you don't have to continue it just for the sake of continuing it, especially if that was never the plan in the first place. So I think bravo to HBO if they don't do another season. If it's not something that they're comfortable with. Unless there was a plan in place to do a second season right away and there was a great idea. That's the thing. Unless you have a great idea of something you think can match what you did before. You better not do it. Because you're rid- the risk you're running is, is to do a second season because of greed. And because you know people are going to watch it. And then it ends up not matching up to that first season. And then what are you stuck with? Not as. You know, you're kind of. HBO's got a very good reputation for making quality content and knowing when enough is enough. And maybe that is a lesson that they should have learned from Game of Thrones based on a lot of fans' reactions. Think about how. That whole thing went down. So be careful what you wish for because what you might end up with is if you didn't like that final season of Game of Thrones, you could end up with a similar situation for Season 2 of Watchmen. So keep that in the back of your head. Now I want to talk really quickly about the Morbius trailer. I know that came out earlier in the week, but this is my first chance to actually get a chance to talk about it with you. And the movie's going to be coming out, it looks like, in July 31st of 2020. And it looks like, for the most part... We're going to get a pretty comics accurate storyline where you've got, you know, Dr. Michael Morbius who's got that, you know, rare blood condition. He's going to be trying to, you know, cure that and he's going to, you know, take the measures that he does and stuff's going to go wrong and all of a sudden he's going to have these, you know, kind of vampire superhuman abilities and you know that bloodlust. That that you know, we we could see possibly take him over. Now the question is is that are we going to be you know are we going to be villain are we going to be anti-hero here right away how is that whole thing going to play out but what it seems like is it's going to be the fight for where's the line it seems like that's the impression that i get from this first trailer like where's the line like there's a line and i'm going to paraphrase this cuz I, I don't remember the exact line in the trailer where where somebody says you know when the when the cure is more horrific Than the disease. I think that's a line from Jared Harris's character. When the cure is more horrific from the disease, that's when you know you've gone too far, sort of thing. Okay, so I think that's your theme of this movie. You're you're seeing a guy who would do anything to find a cure for his condition and to help others too. By the way, it's not just him; he's trying to help others as well as a doctor. But then, you know, at what point does it go too far? And then, you know, that goes into the Hippocratic oath as well so and can he control this other side of himself too so now we know that you know in in the comics Morbius goes on to kind of be this anti here he's not necessarily a villain the entire time but where and then we see that Michael Keaton cameo right so you've got Vulture there and then that you know the whole crossover talk starts because of that right and you know oh well this is you know this introduces the Sony storyline into the into the MCU and I'm like guys Spider-Man's Sony anyway, so they're they're kind of sharing right now, and they're being nice with each other, and you know, it's a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of situation. Let's not pretend that this connection wasn't already there, because it kind of was. Just because it wasn't referenced in Venom doesn't mean that it didn't exist after this deal, and won't exist beyond this. You know, there's gonna be connections there, because these are Sony Marvel movies, that are on loan to the MCU almost. This is one of those times where Disney didn't necessarily win out. To me, this is much more beneficial for Sony, and I've said that on past podcasts before. So this was always going to be connected, and once this deal ends, Spider-Man goes back to Sony unless Disney can find a way to pry this character away from them. So Tom Holland and company would just move over to the Sony umbrella, and that would be it. And then Sony's already got these other cast of characters that they could basically do whatever they want with. So it looks intense. It looks like we are going to get some horror vibes from this, which I think there's there's nothing wrong with that at all, given the the fact that you know we're talking about the living vampire here and and Doctor Michael Morbius. But then you know the 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 trailer beyond Morbius and 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 Martine Bancroft is basically people just ominously walking and looking villainous. That's that's the rest of the trailer, basically. So it's a first trailer. I, I, I definitely think that we've got, we got a lot from this, though. I think it sets the tone very well. I think that this is going to be a really neat spinoff. I thought it was going to be a risk at first. I still think it's going to be a little bit of a risk. But it looks like it might be one worth taking for Sony. We'll see where Jared Leto can take this thing. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about the announcement for the NBC Peacock streaming service that was announced at TCA this week as well. It's going to be releasing on July the 15th nationwide, but it will be available April 15th for Comcast, Xfinity, X1, and Flex subscribers. Now, there's going to be three tiers here. The free tier, which will, you know, but here's the, here's the kicker. You're not going to have access to the entire Peacock library, and you're only going to get select episodes of the originals. Okay, so there will be a free tier, but it again allows you to try the streaming service, not have to pay anything, see how it is, see how you like it, and then maybe decide from there what you want to do. And then you've got Peacock Premier, which you know lifts the veil of the of those restrictions of the free, but it will still have ads. And then you have the ad free, which is nine ninety nine. So not bad as far as price tiers and stuff like that. And there was released, you know, Psych Two, Lassie Come Home. They released the first look. Like that, you've got Brave New World, which is going to be coming to that. Looks like that's going to span the globe. That's going to be really, really neat, based on those that that classic series of novels as well. So there's a lot of interesting things that are already. Plus, you're going to have stuff like The Office and Frasier going to be on there as well. If you're interested in some of the classic programming, but you know these streaming services kind of are going to live and die. On the originals, aren't they? And that's because of HBO Max. And that's because of Disney Plus coming out so strong with the originals that they're going to have with the licensed properties that they already have in place as it is. So while you can, as a Peacock subscriber, NBC can say, oh, you can watch The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon hours before it airs. It's like, okay, cool. Or I can just DVR it and watch it whenever I want. So... There are certain advantages that seem like their advantages but not necessarily be in anyone else's eyes but NBC's, but I do think that the smartest thing that they did here was making the service free for everybody and giving them the option to then subscribe or giving them a chance to feel like they're missing something and at least having them drop at $4.99 to get that subscription. And I mean, $4.99, not bad. $4.99 a month, that's a cup of coffee these days. So that's really not a terrible price point. So, I mean, I could see that that could be something that you roll the dice on and then maybe NBC sees where it goes from there and sees how the originals pan out and make a difference and maybe we'll get more and more. Or if stuff might move from NBC to the streaming services to avoid being canceled as well, so you might get extra seasons of shows that we love that won't be gone too soon. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, speaking of NBC, we're going to be talking about Season 5 of The Magicians. Jay Taylor returns to the show to talk about Katie and more next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: This is Summer Bishop from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: It's hard to believe we're talking about Season 5 of The Magicians already, which is Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Sci Fi. Happy to welcome back one of our, by the way, best of. 2018 moments from the show. By the way, Jay Taylor, back. How's it going?
1: Thank you. Good. Really great. How are you?
0: Doing fantastic. I mean, crazy to think, right? I mean, we're talking about five seasons here. Have you had a chance to, you know, kind of step back and reflect on how much Katie's grown over the past five years?
1: Oh my! God, I have, and it's. I mean, it's exponential growth, and it's also it's just mind blowing for me as a person to be on a show for five years, almost six years, as shooting the pilot. And that's just, it's been such a gift. And also, I'm excited about how Katie has grown over these five
0: years, because we know it's been a lot of growth. Yeah, it's been a ton of growth. As a matter of fact, to me, one of the biggest moments of last season was when we found out that Katie was trying to solve the cases from her previous identity and that, you know, she didn't want to be anybody's sidekick anymore. How empowering was that moment for you? And how much of her own path are we actually going to see in season five?
1: You know it was it was probably the most impactful moment I think I'd had thus far on the show I have a, a big statement because it's been a lot but I think the reason why it was so impactful for me was she finally stepped into her power and she found her purpose and I think it's something that we all strive to do and strive to find and, and obtain and it was incredible to um, to be able to embody that that growth and um, that strength that she's acquired from all of the, the trauma that she's gone through because I think she, she's proven time and time again that, uh, that it's just made her stronger. And I forgot the second part of the question because <laughs> so I was so excited about that one.
0: <laughs> Actually, I think you got it, so I think we're good.
1: Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs>
0: Now, we actually get to see Katie interact with more cast members than usual this past season now. What would you say is Katie's most complicated relationship other than Penny?
1: Oh, I mean, we know that her relationship with Julia is obviously complicated, but I think Katie has a bit of a complicated, some might say tumultuous relationship with, with most people that don't truly know her heart. And I think the reason it's complicated with Julia, I mean, obvious reasons, there's a a lot of history and past. Um, But I think the most interesting one to me lately has been the one between her and Alice because it's just such an unlikely pairing and they actually work together really well, which we saw last season. And so that one always is, is fun for me. And also I love working with Olivia. It's always a
0: great time. Olivia is definitely awesome. We love her, too. Now, things have been getting more and more complicated. I mean, excuse me, things have been getting more and more musical on the show lately, and you've been a big part of that, actually. Now, I can't hear take on me any other way now, by the way, so thanks for that. Um, You're welcome. uh, (laughs) So talk about...
1: Neither
0: can I, so... Well, there you go. Talk about that final scene a little bit, and can you tell us if things will get musical again this season? Yeah, well,
1: that final scene was one of the most heart-wrenching moments I think uh, I can only speak for myself but people have reiterated their own feelings about it being one of the most heart-wrenching experiences it had thus far because it it really was saying goodbye to a character but it, in in such a, a beautiful way and I think music really speaks to the soul and speaks to the heart of, of situations and, and people and and so it was just so incredibly moving not just as an actor and as um but as this, I mean not just as this character but as an actor as well and it was really really powerful and yes you will absolutely see more musicals this year um, <laughs> and um, I think you're going to be really surprised by some of it and um, it's oh gosh I wish I could get tell you all of it because it's so much fun uh, it's a lot of fun I'll just say that it's a lot of fun
0: surprises are even better when they're musical just saying
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, we kind of saw that uh, last season that the library was kind of exposed for what they were doing to the Hedge Witches and kind of promised to make it right. Now, with the library kind of in disarray, it seems like Katie wants to take matters into her own hands a little bit this season. So with that going on, how much can you tease for us about that journey beyond episode one? Well, it's
1: interesting. I think because of the grieving that all of these characters are experiencing they all experience it differently and i think for katie anytime she's going through any sort of pain she actually has a lot of self doubt and we've seen that with her addiction we've seen that with with various things and i think um she's really questioning how how to lead and um what her own capabilities are and i think um it's the hero's journey right it's the, the reluctant hero trying to to find their way and do do what's right for the sake of humanity and and um i think she'll continue to fight for that but i can't really tell you much more after
0: that <laughs> now we've actually seen jade that that the the, t- the shows typically had a quote-unquote big bad every season whether it be the beast or last season it was evil elliot and i guess maybe to a certain extent the library as well but do you feel like this season everyone or certain groups kind of have like their own big bad per se oh
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i think um uh, Yes. <laughs> I will say yes, because I can't really use much more, except that we also, we know there's um, there's a plethora of magic. And because of that, you know, I love the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, we see magic potentially getting into the wrong hands and what what happens there. And uh, the fate of humanity might be at stake, but, you know, that's kind of, kind of normal for the magician.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of powerful, of course, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking to Jade Taylor who plays Katie on the Magicians, which you can watch every Wednesday night at ten o'clock Eastern time on Sci Fi. Now, Jade, the Magicians has some of the best social media stuff and some of the best posts out there. I I love it so much. Now, there was one thing that you guys did called Lines Out of Context, which I loved for season five. Now, is there any chance you can give us another one of those completely out of context from this season from Katie? Oh goodness. Hmm. Oh gosh, there's there's some good ones. That's oh gosh, I can't really think of one off the top of my head that wouldn't be too much of a spoiler. Wow, there's that many, huh?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot, and it's it's pretty really revealing. I think I think I gave all the really like the good ones, but I will say one of my favorite tuts is a uh, sleepy time tut, and I may have to put one of my uh, fellow friends to sleep. Um, before they do something.
0: Well, that's really, really interesting. Although, you know, when I've got, I've got a newborn in the house, so if you if you want to put me to sleep, anytime you want to do that, I'm cool with that. Oh
1: yeah, or or the newborn because then maybe you'll get some sleep.
0: There you go. Even better. Even better. There you go. Now, speaking of speaking of um, speaking of Penny, we talked about him a little bit earlier on. We know that this is Penny. This is not Katie's Penny per se. Now, but it does seem like he and Julia. Are going to be moving forward with their relationship now. Do you think that Katie has mixed feelings about that, or she kind of you know moved on from that?
1: I think I think it's twofold. I think on one hand, um, she she knows that it's not her penny, but I think there's a when she sees this penny, there's a longing for hers. I, I think she. Um, she can dissociate and knows that it's just not, not the same person. But I, I mean, looking at somebody that looks identical to your love, you're automatically going to feel a sense of, of sadness uh, for that loss. And um, I think that's, that's definitely true. And I also think it created an interesting relationship between Katie and this penny, because I think there's a familiarity there. And so she feels like she can reveal more to him, and is a bit more vulnerable with him than I think. Think some of the other characters because of that relatability and that um, that similarity. So, and yeah, I think I think there's. Yeah, of course, it's heart-wrenching, but at the same time, she definitely knows that it's not her
0: penny. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a loaded question, but you talked about the the magic being overloaded right now. You've actually gone through times in the show where there was no magic at all. So based on what you know now and what you've experienced through these five seasons, what do you think is worse, not having magic at all or having too much magic?
1: Oh, that is so hard. <laughs> It's hard because, as me personally, I'd be like, "Give me all the magic." Yeah, yeah. But, uh, in this particular circumstance, I mean, like I said about absolute power, it's it's um it then I mean when you have none, it's it's easier to I think survive in that world, but at the same time, it wouldn't be as interesting. So I would much prefer more magic. <laughs> But I know that Katie probably
0: would disagree with that. <laughs> That's okay to have kind of divergent opinions from you and your character that you play. That kind of happens.
1: <laughs> You're <welcome.
0: laughs> Now, speaking of social media that I was talking about earlier, you posted a picture not too long ago of a custom Funko Pop that a fan sent you. And as somebody who's been sitting in the panel rooms during Comic-Con, I know how amazing That the Magicians fans are. Now, if you could release a line of merchandise for the Magicians or or from the show, what do you think fans would love the most?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, I think actual props and artifacts from the show. And that's something that, like, it's funny. Every year we do, like, wrap gifts for the show. And I always find something that I find on set and ask the art department where they got it, and then I, I buy a bunch of them to give to our cast or, and crew because it's something that I think is so memorable, and it's like a bringing a piece of, of the magical world home with you. And um, so there's, like, the Dean's Globes that glow, or um, I have this other um, little paperweight piece that is really memorable. So things like that I love personally, so I think... I love it. I think the fans might love it. That's a
0: really cool idea. That's a really neat little behind the scenes peek there. Now, Katie, before I'm mean, excuse me, Jade, before I let you go, I have one more question for you because, like I said, you were on the show back in, uh, about a year, about a couple of years ago, and we were talking about the keys, and you talked about how you had way too many keys. You had like a thousand keys, and that was crazy. So, I have to know a little bit of an update. Have you pared down the amount of keys that you had, or has it gotten worse? <laughs>
1: I have pared down the amount of keys because I have pared down the amount of places I live. So I'm only in Vancouver and L.A. instead of New York, Vancouver. I mean, it was just a it was whole thing. So um, I have pared down. I feel, I feel really good about it. <laughs> There's probably only about a hundred now. So, um, yeah, it feels good.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad that your purse is a little bit lighter, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, I'm conmarrying my, my, my keys in my purse life. <laughs>
0: Well, we can't wait to see what's up with Katie on The Magicians this season. Season 5 of The Magicians you can watch every Wednesday night at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Sci-Fi Channel. Make sure you're also watching again and catching up on previous seasons and episodes at sci com slash The Magicians. It's Jade Taylor. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Of course. Thank you so much. You know, one thing I've always loved about Katie on The Magicians is that she won't be pushed around. And she is really, really tough and always has been, but it seems like she's found her focus and her purpose and something that pushes her forward in a leadership role, finally, which is something that I think she's been destined for for a long time. We're finally going to get to see that, I think, this season on The Magicians. And I really think that this is the season we go to new heights with Katie. She's had some big moments on the show before. I think it'll get even bigger this year, and I can't wait for that. So thank you to Jade Taylor once again for joining me on the show this week. Again, thanks to the folks at Sci-Fi as well. If you want to find the the first interview that I did with Jay Taylor, you can always go to and find our past shows there. You're going to have to go back to 2017 for that one, though. Just going to let you know about that. Also, the Best of 2018 show. She's on that one as well. You can also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Nerdy. Hard to believe next week is our 300th episode. Yeah, got a lot of plans for 300, and again, follow along on social media. I'll reveal those as they come up. I think it's going to be a fun show, and, and again, thank you so much for following the show. If this is your first show, hey, you've picked a great time to jump on board. I can't wait to tell you what's going to be coming up next week. But for now, remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.